Friday, and we are working for Trousseau, Sam Park, and John Ramey with you on Friday, December 29th. On this episode, we will be looking ahead to the coming year, 2024, elections everywhere in 2024, and in fact, there's already one underway at the end of 2023 in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and there's trouble, so we will focus on that. That will lead us into looking ahead to 2024, where I suspect Sam Park will point out that Africa will continue to be in the heart of the matter of the 21st century. I have then an ascending list that I think you have either agreed to discuss or even potentially agree with, an ascending list of important stories we think will remain important throughout 2024. And then we will also discuss the life of Jacques Delors, the great um, architect of the European Union who passed away at the age of 98. Sam Park, um, hope you had a good Christmas, good holiday. Thank you, and you as well. Yes, all right. Um, Also, we are on video, and so for those of you who've been listening to us, we are now bringing you pictures with radio. Some would say it would never work, but of course, uh, that has been disproven. So Sam is joining us from Hollywood. I am in my uh, studio in Reno, Nevada, as uh, I'm here on... uh, my day job where I'm broadcasting for the University of Nevada Athletics uh, Wolfpack teams. We have a basketball game tomorrow. Okay. Democratic Republic of Congo. The latest, according to Reuters, yesterday, the government, the ruling government, refused opposition calls for a re-election because of disputed elections. The main observer mission has reported, quote, numerous irregularities likely to affect the integrity of of the uh, results, the provisional results issued on the 20th or regarding the 20th of December general election show the incumbent Felix Chizaketi with a commanding lead, but his opponents uh, are saying that the results need to be annulled and they're citing these widespread issues. This is a country of 111 million people, 44 million people voted. There were something like 75,000 candidates because it was a general election. And this Nation, the Democratic Republic of Congo, is 179 out of 191 on the Human Development Index as published by the United Nations. There are like 2 million children in risk of starvation. This is a, a sorely underdeveloped country and has been since it's got it, since it's, it uh, became independent from Belgium. Um, so undertaking an election of this magnitude, of this scope, is hard to do in any country, but you almost have to admire the uh, ambition of it in the DRC. I would have to agree with that. And so would a fellow named uh, Patrick Miala, who is the chief government spokesman that I've seen on numerous international television networks since the election. Uh, He was, for example, you don't get that job, or at least he didn't, by being a poor communicator. He's very good at what he does. And he did not say, for example, well, how did your democratic nations do on your second try? And I think that's important to remember is that this will only be the second time that leadership of the Democratic Republic of Congo will be decided at the ballot box, that is, through a peaceful transition of power. In many ways, this story resembles the story that we covered earlier this year about the elections in 
Nigeria, the largest, geographically speaking, country in Africa. The Democratic Republic of Congo is the second largest. And they have many of the same problems, although I would say worse iterations of those same problems that Nigeria has. And again, Nigeria has had numerous elections, most of which have been problematic on one level or another, but they have managed peaceful transitions of power several times during this century, at least, whereas the Democratic Republic of Congo, hopefully this time, will manage to do so only for the second time. So it's important, I think, to keep that in mind. And Mr. Miala pointed out numerous times that, okay, yes, there were many problems, but many, many people voted. And this is not something that we're used to doing here in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which, let's face it, is really a, a sort of aspirational name for the country. And as you point out, this is a very poor and troubled country. And many of the problems that bedeviled this election stem just from the poverty and underdevelopment of the country. It was difficult to get ballots to the remote, more remote areas of the country, some of which are plagued by unceasing violence and have been for many years. I think it's also worth pointing out that uh, about 20 years ago or so, Congo was experiencing and coming out of a terrible civil war, which, if I'm not mistaken, was the worst conflict that our planet has seen since the Second World War. And yet it's one that we've heard very little about. It's actually, sorry to interrupt, referred to as the Great African War by yes, some. Because uh, numerous uh, other neighboring nations were involved in it. In fact, I would say, and I think many people would agree, that the genocide in Rwanda in 1994 was inextricably related to the civil conflict in neighboring Democratic Republic of Congo. Rwanda is a tiny country, uh, but the Democratic Republic of Congo today accuses them of harboring uh, and, in fact, supporting a Congolese rebel outfit called M23, which is uh, ravaging parts of the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. And this has been going on for a very long time, and it's a very serious situation. Yeah, the eastern part of the DRC borders Rwanda, we should exactly. just point out. And all of these problems make it challenging, to say the least, to hold an election in the DRC. Okay, so why is everybody up in arms about this particular election if so many people voted and there is understandably challenges in executing an election of this scale in a place where the infrastructure is so poor. The Catholic Church is extremely powerful in the DRC, and the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church both participate in the vote monitoring mission. And there were something like 5,400 reports of incidents at polling stations, and over 60% um, of those incidents interrupted voting. Now, again, you think about 44 million people voting and all these polling stations, but it, 
it's a it was enough to get two institutions who maybe aren't always inclined to agree with one another to make the same call on the same play to use a sporting metaphor Sam. yes they I both called foul that's right and i think that this will go on for a little while i suspect that the outcome of this will be very similar to that we saw in nigeria earlier in the year in some ways both of these nations i think are sort of too big to fail right I just don't think that uh, there will be uh, a lot of appetite to do this over again. Now, I could be wrong about that. As I say, the situation in the DRC is worse than that in Nigeria, as challenging as Nigeria's problems are. It's actually worse in the DRC. So it's possible that the demonstrations that we've seen in Kinshasa this week. And for all we know, there are demonstrations in other parts of the Democratic Republic of Congo that we're not seeing. But if the demonstrations continue, some of which have been put down with some level of violence at the hands of the state, uh, this could spiral out of control. I don't think that's going to happen, but it's definitely a possibility. And because it seems like Almost every time we talk about an election or violence in Africa, there is this kind of macro or meta discussion about why haven't we been talking about this more and why is this so essential going forward? Of course, or perhaps ironically, the DRC is uh, perhaps the world's uh, biggest uh, provider of cobalt. There's a ton of cobalt there and cobalt is essential to the electrification of mobility, like electric cars, lithium ion batteries. And so, yes, there's 111 million people there who are at the bottom of the human development index. And ironically, there is one of the most coveted natural resources in the soil. And it seems like this is, it's almost standard issue when we talk about the political strife in Africa. There's also a component here that, you know, saves humanity in the face of a climate catastrophe. Yes. However, cobalt mining in the Democratic Republic of Congo isn't the most environmentally right. friendly process that we can imagine. Right. Uh, at the same time, other mineral rich countries are boosting their exploration of trying to find cobalt with some success, right? It just so happens that cobalt has been uh, extracted and exploited in the Democratic Republic of Congo for some time, and other nations are trying to get in on that action just because there's going to be an enormous market for cobalt. And so uh, the DRC partly by virtue of being such a large country, is the world's leading producer of cobalt, but it may not always be. So that's something that we should keep in mind here also. And of course, uh, the labor exploitation involved in cobalt mining in the DRC is something that I think a lot of people would prefer not to think about. And perhaps we should think a little bit more about it going forward. That seems to be a point we come across generally regarding uh, issues in African nations is that people have preferred and possibly would continue to not 
or would prefer to not think about some of the uglier aspects of what post-colonial Africa is. But because of how Africa is situated with regard to resources that could power a green revolution to save humanity, and also, as we've discussed on previous episodes, uh, how Africa is on the front lines or parts of the continent are on the front lines of climate change as far as the consequences. You pointed it out early in our podcast series, and I'm kind of blown away by it every time we come back to it. Africa is in the heart of the matter of the 21st century. In, it's it's inevitable. But you wouldn't know it. From, right. Uh, as somebody who's to- in, exactly like we didn't grow up talking about it and we don't hear much about it now. That's exactly right. And for example, probably the most serious armed conflict going on in the world right now is still the civil war in Sudan. Uh, which is also one of the world's worst humanitarian crises happening right now. We're hearing almost nothing about this, Uh, but it's an extraordinarily serious situation. For example, Sudan is one of the nations that has a shoreline on the Red Sea, where there's been a considerable amount of activity just recently. Uh, If the revolutionary movement in Sudan takes over the country, that could kind of complicate things. But we'll discuss the Red Sea later on in today's show in more detail. All right. Let's move on to our big four stories for 2024. Uh, I, stealing from you in our year in review, have power ranked these Uh, power ranked these stories in ascending order of importance. So number four, we'll go with international elections. Time magazine. Remember them? Vaguely. Yeah. Yeah. They have a nice little article online about this. More voters. This is times reporting more voters than ever in history. will vote in 2024 as at least 64 countries plus the European union a combined population of approximately 49% of the people on the planet are scheduled to hold national elections in 2024. Now, not all of these elections that are scheduled will take place, like the one in Ukraine in December. Uh, Not all of these will be free and fair elections, like the ones uh, in Russia scheduled for March. But it's still an astounding thought. Half the planet is voting. In 2024, yes, John, it's going to be elect Orama worldwide, elect a Palooza, something like that. Yeah. Yes, I like elect Orama better. Okay, but, you know, no, we, we can workshop these things as time. It's not on. even January yet. We have time. Yes, but there's going to be elections coming up very shortly that we're going to have to discuss. Okay, so I've power ranked. Just I pulled out of the list uh, of all the elections, my big ones. Okay. Taiwan and Pakistan in January. Yes. Mali tentative in February, Russia in March, Mexico in June. And then you can have a field day because there are a bunch of them in December. But I have Ukraine and India as my two biggest December 2024 elections. We're not talking about the U.S. election yet on this list. That's right. Uh, uh, Don't forget the European Parliament. I left that out because the EU is boring. Is it? But it's important. You're right. It is important, and and it will happen also in June. Uh, 
fortunately, we'll get to sort of warm up for the season with next weekend's elections in Bangladesh, which is a very large country. Uh, but the elections there are not remotely suspenseful. Uh, this will be a, I, would, I don't want to say rigged, but there's no real doubt about who's going to win, which is, surprise, surprise, the incumbent party, the Awami League, uh, in no small part because the main opposition party, the Bangladeshi Nationalist Party, uh, is boycotting the election with good reason because many of their leaders are under arrest and as are thousands and thousands of their party activists. But we'll discuss that in greater detail after it happens, which will be in uh, the first, that is next weekend, the first weekend of January. But again, because there's no suspense about it, it's a good way for us to ease in to electorama. And that'll be followed the following week by Taiwan, which, although it's a tiny country, uh, is of immense geo geopolitical importance for reasons that I don't think I need to explain to any regular listener of working for Crusoe. One thing when we review these elections, like what's going on in the DRC or Nigeria or uh, what you just described in Bangladesh upcoming, it becomes kind of retroactively more horrific what happened on January 6th in this country and the reaction to it. I'm not entirely sure enough rank and file voting Americans who ostensibly love freedom understand the bruise on American prestige that January 6th was. And I think there's a, first of all, I think you're absolutely right about that. I think there's an unexamined reason for that, which is seldom discussed actually in our public remembrances of January 6th, which is that on January 6th of 2021, and I think I've talked to you about this before, the United States was at that moment uh, enmeshed in the Delta wave of the COVID-19 pandemic, which was far and away the worst part of the pandemic. People were dying in enormous numbers. This was very traumatic. The whole pandemic was such a harrowing experience for everybody in America and around the world that I think January 6th in some ways was just beyond the bandwidth of people's coping capacity. And uh, I think it's important to remember that and I just wish that were a, a more widely discussed factor as we think about these things. Uh, I think everybody who listens to this podcast who uh, loves liberty should think about that as we report on every election that's coming up this year. Okay. I agree. Yes. And just to address the elephant in the room, along with, of course, the corresponding donkey, uh, <laughs> we don't generally talk a lot about domestic politics here on Working for Crusoe. And that's not because we don't find it interesting, because we certainly do. Uh, it's mainly just because we feel that there are an exhaustingly large number of podcasts that people can listen to to get coverage about domestic American politics. However, we do discuss economics and international affairs. And these are topics that are going to figure very heavily in the campaign coming up. And so... John, let's you and I make a deal right now 
that we'll try and be very judicious in how we cover the campaign. Because let's face it, quite a lot of what happens will be the utterances of Donald Trump, assuming he's the Republican nominee, which I'm very confident he will be. And so we'll have to decide on a case-by-case basis how serious a level of discussion these utterances deserve. Uh, And so we'll try and do our best with that as the year rolls on. That will be a fun journalistic experiment as a lifelong reporter. Depending Uh, on how's that for a silver lining. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to see. (laughs) Okay. Story number three for 2024 is the Hamas Israel war. I have this ranked behind my number two story, which is the ongoing Russian invasion in Ukraine. I suppose you could probably flip these two either way. Yeah, they could they could be tied for second. Right. Um, we've come up against this recently regarding the Hamas Israel war. I, I'm I don't feel I have a lot to contribute on it beyond that conflict. And whether it is resolved or not, whether it expands into a larger regional war or not, and how long Netanyahu is able to remain in power, assuming there is a cessation of hostilities, will be very pivotal. Um, and, I, and it will impact what I have as the biggest story of two, 2024, which is the U.S. election. So I just feel like um, that conflict will uh, have many ripples upon the pond in the coming year. I think that's right. And I it also, to your point, speaks directly to a an issue that we've discussed many times during the during this year, uh, that we suddenly stopped talking about on October seventh. And we can understand why very well. Ah, I know. And that and that issue is the fate of American global leadership, especially as regards the nations of the global South. I think that you and I both knew without explicitly saying so that that particular topic maybe wasn't off the table automatically because of October 7th, but it was way down at the end of the table and getting cold. And I think that is... First of all, it'll definitely be an issue in the campaign on some level. This may be a case in which the entire idea of American global leadership is just not something that people are going to find palatable very much longer. It might just be that that historical window was going to close anyway, but there was a time when the United States was considered to be an honest broker in the dispute between Israel and the Palestinians. I don't think anybody outside of the United States believes that today. I don't think that any other president apart from Joe Biden could have done a better job handling the war in Gaza, but that doesn't mean that the job he has done is considered adequate, and I don't actually consider it adequate. I don't blame him. Because again, I don't think anybody else could have done a better job sitting in his chair. But it's just not sustainable if we want to posture our nation as the leader of the world, because other people just aren't having it. This is going to be one of the main outcomes of the war as far as the United States is concerned. Now, that doesn't mean that 
all these other nations of the global south are going to go rushing into the arms of China, who, let's face it, has their own problems in trying to demonstrate leadership of the global south. But it just means that the United States will face a waning, gradual or abrupt, of its influence. I think that's something that will certainly happen on some level in 2024. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is my second most important story in 2024. It's actually probably now that I think about it, the first most important story, because if Russia wins that war, you have a nail in the coffin of the post-World War II international order. But the biggest component in whether Russia will win that war or not is the outcome of the U.S. election, because Donald Trump and his Republican Party will not support Ukraine in their war against Putin. And Donald Trump has long criticized NATO and has questioned the United States' membership in NATO. So those two are bound up inextricably, I think. And I feel like the U.S. election in November will be perhaps the dramatic high point, because if Trump is not elected... That likely means a Democratic majority in at least one of the two uh, houses of the legislative branch. And it means that Joe Biden or a Democrat has won the presidency again. And there is more support for Ukraine in the Democratic Party, I think, just rank and file. Uh, Am I reading that right, Sam? I would have to say so. But we'll find out very soon or at least get some indication of how this might play out. For example, there's been an aid package for Ukraine that's been hung up in Congress for weeks now, uh, mainly due to Republican dysfunction. But that's enough to deprive Ukraine of desperately needed military aid. And hopefully that package will pass in the next week or two. But even if it does... I think we can be very sure that will be the only military aid that Ukraine gets from the United States this year. Uh, I'm happy to say that, in fact, European nations have provided in the aggregate more military aid to Ukraine than the United States has. The United States is the largest single contributor. Uh, And let's face it, uh, it's played a pivotal role in providing aid to Ukraine. But You're right. If uh, Trump wins the election, it could it would have a dire outcome for the cause of Ukraine fighting Putin's invasion. And if Trump wins, NATO's over. And that's the biggest story since the end of the Second World War. I think that's as far as I'm concerned. I think that's probably right. I hesitate to make predictions about Trump in explicit or specific policy matters. But I think that's probably right. So let's frame it this way. There's a chance that NATO's over if Trump wins the U.S. presidential election. Certainly, yeah. That, good, seems, to be, uh, that seems to be a huge deal. Because essentially you'd be undoing the back end of the, the second half of the 20th century and the peace that has been sustained as far as great power conflict since the end of the Second World War. A large, about- p- a large part of it, yes. 
that you, that that seems like a big deal to me. It is. Uh, yeah. But again, the election won't be until November. There'll be a lot that will happen between now and then. So we'll just I, have to see how this goes. I wanted to point out the reason, even if the one Ukraine aid package does get through Congress and is approved by the Biden administration, that will be the only one. I, I think the point you're trying to make is Joe Biden can't run on how much he's propped up Ukraine. Right. That's a political non-starter for him. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm not saying that at all. I think he will run on that. Uh, but the point is that he won't be able to get any additional aid through Congress. Right. OK. In an election year. Sure. Because the Republicans will all say no. That's right. right. Because they'll by the and time the if Trump, if Trump becomes the nominee, they won't dare defy him by providing more aid to Ukraine. Sam Park, we have time now for the uh, reflection on Jacques Delors, the architect of the European Union who passed away um, a couple days ago at the age of 98 and famously battled with Margaret Thatcher, the uh, conservative uh, prime minister of the United Kingdom. And at one point, I read there was a headline, and God bless the British newspapers and their headline writers. But at one point, Thatcher gave a speech that issued a harsh rebuke of Delors' vision for a united Europe, which has come to pass now with Brexit, right? But uh, at the time, uh, the UK was part of the still uh, congealing European Union. This is, I think, in about 1990. And the headline summarizing Thatcher's speech read, up yours, Delore, which, of course, has a silent S at the end of it. So it looks like up yours, Delores. And that's a whale of a headline. Um, that's all I got. I mean, I thought that was pretty good. But I'll I'll cede the floor to you about the importance of Jacques Delore. Let's, first of all, let me just say that uh, I know more about him today than I did a week ago. Same. Uh, but uh, he's been a very important figure in uh, the development of what we now know as the European Union. When he became the president of the European Commission in 1985, the commission was the sort of bureaucratic executive arm of what was then called the European Economic Community. And Delors moved into that job from his previous position as the finance minister of France. And very, people, very few people knew who he was at the time. Uh, but by the time he left his job, as president of the European Commission, the European Union had come into being. Now, obviously, something like that doesn't happen just because of one person, but nobody worked harder than Jacques Delors to bring this about. And it happened on his watch. For example, uh, he was one of the people who said that the, the successor institution should be called the European union right and that it would be explicitly political in addition to economic and this uh in addition to his call for a uh european currency which i think was thatcher's main objection yes right was that and in fact they never took it they never took it they Brits stayed, never took the yeah, euro stuck with sterling the entire time uh but delore was also one of the first and most ardent proponents of the idea that there should be a unified currency across the European Union. Now, there are 
a number of EU nations who still don't use the euro, but the great bulk of them do. And of course, the union has had its ups and downs over the years, but it's been a remarkably durable and successful institution. May I just interject, when you say the European Union has had its ups and downs over the years, over the decades, sure. What uh, Europe hasn't done is explode into an orgy of industrialized killing, which is all it did in the first half of the 20th century. That's right. And for uh, you know, no and for centuries the, before. Yeah, that's so right. up or down, the European Union has preserved an unprecedented peace. That's right. And uh, that's in no small part because of the work of Jacques Delors. And in fact, when he stepped down as president of the European Commission, a job he got, by the way, at the age of 60 and held for a decade. And let's face it, if you're 70 years old, you're ready to retire. And he did, uh, just as the European Union itself was being born. And so we might guess that he had enough confidence in the institutions that he had helped create that he figured that they could survive without his leadership. And he was right. Uh, and I think he's to be commended for that because there are plenty of politicians who said, well, I need to keep being in charge. Otherwise, this whole thing's going to collapse. The Lord did not do that. And the euro, that is the currency itself, didn't actually come into being for, I think, seven years after that. And that's a long time to wait. And I think that uh, Delore had to have some faith in uh, what he created, that even the unfinished business of the euro uh, could come about even without his leadership. One more thing I would say is that I'm not sure that the Good Friday Agreement of 1998 between Ireland and the United Kingdom would have come about if it were not for their joint membership of the European Union, which came into being five years earlier. I think very quietly, many EU officials were saying to officials of both Ireland and the UK, listen, we can't have an undeclared war between two of our member states. That's kind of our whole thing. So you guys need to sort this out. Still to this day, no European Union official will jump up and take credit for this because they all understood that they shouldn't be seen to be pushing their member states around. But I think that European Union membership was a hugely important aspect of that agreement. All right. R.I.P. Jacques Delors. Yes. The EU is the house that Jacques built. He's Sam Park. I'm John Ramey. Email us at johnramiemedia.com at gmail.com until next week so long have a great weekend